Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 44 where we go back, back to, to the, the past, past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can hear us every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play and Thumbtack to the Comic Shop wall. Uh, we got a very dense, lengthy episode today, but we are going to be steeped in the chromium age of comics, and we're going to talk a lot about that when we go through Gen 13, all the 13s. That's All of them. That's right, all three of them. Like, uh, 13A came out August 1996 cover date. That was $1.30 USD, $1.85 Canadian. Then uh, 13B came out cover date October 1996. That was still $1.30 USD, but it went up to $1.90 Canadian. Must have been a little shift in the economy right about then. A rough winter. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, 13C it came out early November 1996. Uh, again, $1.30 USD, $1.90 Canada. Story by Brandon Choi, J. Scott Campbell, and Jim Lee. Pencils by J. Scott Campbell. Inks by Alex Garner, Peter Guzman, Richard Friend, Tim McWeeny and Edwin Roselle, colors by Joe Chiodo, Martin Jimenez, and Wildstorm FX, letters by Bill O'Neill, and Chris Eliopoulos. Or Eliopoulos. Iliop- <laughs> Ili- oh, sorry, okay. I, I did the best I could. Assistant editor Gigi Barbus and editor Sarah Becker. That's a lot of people. Yeah, they a lot of comic here. It is, it is, it is. Uh, we'll start out, as we usually do, by talking about some of the people. We will start with Jim Lee, in, in relatively brief, because yeah. we uh, we went pretty deep on him during our Wildcats episode here. Uh, let's see, Jim Lee, born August 11th, 1964, in Seoul, South Korea. He grew up near St. Louis, Missouri, in a typical middle-class childhood. He had a typical middle-class childhood. Since Jim didn't speak English, he felt sort of like an outsider. And like many outsiders before him, he was drawn to comic books, particularly the X-Men, who themselves were shunned by society. Hmm. Uh, Jim partially taught himself English by reading comics. He would read every single word on every single page until he understood them. And that included the ads, the letters page, and even the, I can never pronounce this word right. Indicia. There it is. Now, in Jim's uh, high school yearbook, his classmates predicted that he would found his own comic book company. Hey, hmm. pretty, pretty good. He, he must have gone to a psychic high school. Like, what the? He did. <laughs> <laughs> but despite loving comics and being considered quite talented, Jim had uh, every intention of following his father's footsteps into medicine. Uh, after graduating high school, Jim attended Princeton University to study psychology. In 1986, as he neared graduation, he took a drawing class, and uh, that would reignite his passion for comic creation. Uh, It also helped that this was right around the time that uh, a couple of uh, seminal works hit the uh, shelves, uh, Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen in particular, according to Jim. Yeah, and you can definitely see the kind of influence those had on his immediate works closest to that period. but. Uh, he did get his psychology degree. He postponed medical school. I guess he wanted to be a psychiatrist or something in that field mm. and allowed himself to, a year to break into comics. He agreed with his parents that he would reapply to medical school if the comics didn't pan out after a year. They panned out. His first ever published <laughs> work was in Solson Publications uh, Christmas Special Samurai Santa Number 1, 1986. He attended New York Comic Con 1987 and met Archie Goodwin, and he, at that time, working for Marvel Comics as an editor. And he received his first assignment by editor Carl Potts, who hired him to pencil the Midlist series Alpha Flight, which began with issue 51, cover date October 1987. 
He moved from that title in 1989 to Punisher War Journal, and in 1989, Lee filled in for regular illustrator Mark Silvestri on Uncanny X-Men number 248 and became the series regular artist with number 267. Silvestri left the title on his own accord, and that's its own little story. Uh, He worked on that title with Chris Claremont as the writer, and they co-created Gambit, among other fun things happening while they were on the title together. Certainly, and then in 1991, Lee helped to launch a second ongoing X-Men series that was called X-Men. Uh, X-Men, the adjectiveless one, which we'll just call Volume 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one came out October, or cover dated October 1991. It's the best-selling comic book of all time, moving 8.1 million copies and netting $7 million in profit. Wow. Yikes. Uh, Now, this is all according to a public proclamation by Guinness World Records at the 2010 San Diego Comic-Con. Perhaps helped by the fact that this issue had five different variant covers, uh, four of which show different uh, characters from the book that formed a single image when laid side by side, and a fifth gatefold cover that combined every image into that, you know, wonderful puzzle. Uh, It's a pretty iconic cover. You'll you'll recognize it when you see it. Yeah. And... uh, Lee himself would uh, he would homage himself uh, when he made a print for the new 52 version of uh, Justice League number one in uh, 2011. Yeah, why not? If you're going to homage anybody, why don't you homage yourself? Certainly. Uh, now, very quickly, with the quick the image image comics revolution, this is you know obviously something we could expand on. We've touched on it a lot. We're going to really just touch on it briefly here. Uh, Lee, along with several contemporaries, left Marvel in 1992 to start their own publishing imprint. This would afford them creative control and rights for their own properties, which was a sticking point, uh, especially since Jim Lee had just earned Marvel $7 million in profit. Uh, And most importantly, all the financial benefits that comes with that ownership. So that's, you know, that stems that this comic is from Image, and uh, there you go. And within Image, there was Wildstorm, founded by Jim Lee and Brandon Choi, and that was one of the founding studios that formed Image Comics in 1992, although it was briefly named Aegis Entertainment and Homage Studios before that. Didn't Wildcats 1 come out in Homage? Oh, well, it, it was under the Image, and I don't know if Malibu image is like the, the picture, but image that is was like, like the, the publisher. Yeah, yeah, the publisher, but then... And I think in the Indicia, it was either Aegis or um, um, Homage. <laughs> well, whatever. Yeah, I, I want to say it was Homage. I, I think, I, 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 I think it was, but but it's irrelevant. I mean, these were just yeah. names they were flinging around. Uh, <laughs> although Wildstorm is uh, considered attracting established talents, such as John Romita Jr. from The Big Two, uh, Lee decided to find new talent instead, and Lee's talent search yielded Brett Booth in 1992 and a fellow we'll, we'll be talking about shortly named J. Scott Campbell in 1993. Hmm. See here, I, I usually say on the other side of the table, but not really. This Mm-mm. is uh, Brandon Choi, another story. Same, same table. Yes. <laughs> uh, also born in South Korea and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. Small world. Mm. Um, not a whole lot about this fella. Yeah. Uh, we don't even have a birthday about him, but we, uh, we're sure he has one. Uh, <laughs> according to the, uh, the back of the Wildcats compendium, he left a career in law to write comics. So it might have to suffice to say that he's a childhood friend of Jim Lee's, and uh, let's hear him talk about his buddy. Jim says, Brandon was and still remains one of my closest friends, right behind my wife, Angie. We've known each other since the fifth grade, and it's no exaggeration to anyone who knows us that we are more like brothers. Although we didn't create our own golden, silver, and modern age versions of our characters like the Savage Dragons creator Eric Larson, we still managed to waste hours of our childhoods in our parents' kitchens cooking up our own heroes and villains. 
we'll do a uh, partial bibliography here. Uh, Most of these comics are from uh, Wildstorm, uh, so we will start with Wildcats, who he co-created with Jim Lee. Mm -hmm. Also, A Darker Image, Stormwatch, Deathblow. And uh, the neighbor Deathmate, (laughs) Image Zero, (laughs) Wetworks, The Kindred. He also uh, wrote Savage Dragon 13, but this has a cool little story about it. Yes, this was one of the Savage Dragon 13s. In uh, February 1994, for Image Comics' Image X Month, the founder swapped books. Dragon creator Eric Larson wanted to have his own number 13, so he would have an uninterrupted run. Uh, The Choi and Lee Savage Dragon 13 is often referred to as 13A. Yeah, and I mean, and not to denigrate him, but that is really such an Eric Larson thing. Isn't it? No, I gotta have my, I gotta... (laughs) You know, the code must be maintained. Anyway, he also uh, worked on Grifter Shy. She? Shy. She. Why not? Uh, Sigma, Grifter, the solo Fantastic Four from Heroes Reborn, Psy Tech, The Patriots, Disavowed, and Gen 13, which he co created. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, on the other side of the table, we got J. Scott Campbell. Uh, Jeffrey Scott Campbell was born April 12, 1973, in East Tawas, Michigan. Uh, Scott's family moved when he was very young to Denver, Colorado. Uh, he, rec- he regards this as his uh, childhood home. He has a younger sister who's a digital architect and a younger brother who is a mus- musician. Uh, Campbell was entranced with cartoons and initially wanted to pursue a, pursue a career in animation. Uh, Scott first became interested in comics when, as a teenager, he visited a friend's house and he was shown Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 10. This was a cover dated January 1987 and featured artwork by one of my favorites, Art Adams. Yep. Uh, Campbell recalls, I immediately went nuts over the book. That book had such detail. The art was fantastic. It just started me going. It just turned me around. All of a sudden, I wanted to do this, and I felt that I could. Uh, at this point, Scott uh, started collecting comic books based on the artist and not the writer, which uh, made uh, collecting a little difficult at times. Yeah, Scott said, uh, I didn't know a lot about superheroes. I knew the X-Men and Spider-Man, but I didn't know a lot about the rest. I would go to the comic shop and just ask for the artist I liked. I would say, do you have any Arthur Adams comics? Do you have any Todd McFarlane comics? Do you have any Jim Lee comics? I glanced through the stories, but I was there for the artwork. If the artist took an issue off, I wouldn't read the story. I didn't mind being lost. I just wanted to see the ones with the artists I like. It's a pretty single-minded fellow with what he likes, but that's fine. Uh, In 1989, when he was 15, Scott entered for and won an event. The ultimate video game contest featured in issue number six of Nintendo's official, official magazine, Nintendo Power. There were color drawings for for Lockarm, the video game he pitched, and they were published in the magazine as the winning entry, and I would love to check those out. That's uh, the first time I ever saw J. Scott Campbell's work. Really? I didn't even realize it. Yeah. But you were, do you remember the uh, images at all? or? I do. I, I do. I, I actually dug out the issue in Nintendo Power not wow. too long ago. It's uh, it's it's very, uh, it's in his style, but, it, you know, of course it's... Not, not bad for a 15-year-old. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's excellent for 15, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after graduating from high school in Aurora, Colorado, Campbell did some freelance work doing illustration. Now, uh, Scott was ready to hit the 1993 San Diego Comic-Con with his portfolio when the first issue of Wildcats advertised the talent search for budding artists who wanted to work for Wildstorm, which was, like we said, then called Homage Studios or Homage Studios. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't have the pronunciation guide for that. Uh, <laughs> Scott submitted a four-page Wildcat story along with some other pieces. 
A week and a half later, Jim Lee telephoned Campbell and asked him if he would move to San Diego to work for him. And he's like, sure, why not? Yeah, cool. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? I know. That's the way you break in. I know, really. Like Jim Lee call you and be like, hey, you want to come work for me? Yeah, uh, drop yeah. everything you're doing? Sure, no problem. <laughs> Amazing. No. <laughs> Initially, he went under the name Jeffrey Scott or Jeff Scott for his illustration. Uh, Campbell's first comic works was in uh, two pinups for Homage Studios' swimsuit special in 1993. Because back in the early 90s, we had swimsuit specials. Mm -hmm. Even for comics, uh, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> his subsequent work for Wildstorm includes spot illustrations in the Wildcat source book and most of Stormwatch number zero. That's uh, covered in August 1993. Uh, Campbell went on to co-create the teen superhero team we're going to discuss today, Gen 13. They debuted in Deathmate Black, that's September 1993, before going on to star in their own five-issue miniseries in January of 1994. This was originally co-written by Brandon Choi and Jim Lee, but uh, Campbell would become co-writer with issue number three. Uh, the team would, would eventually be given their own regular ongoing series, which debuted in March 1995, and eventually would get to the lofty number 13. Yep, all three of them. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the Gen 13 concept before we dive into the comic, because there's going to be a lot going on, folks. You're going to want to try to center yourself around what this comic <laughs> is really about. Uh, teens are invited to take part in a government project, which ultimately turns out to be a containment and testing grounds for kids determined to be Gen Active. That is, they have latent superpowers of some kind. The title was originally planned to be Gen X, and as you might imagine, Marvel Comics' legal department wasn't really too keen on the idea. And they had their own Generational X title in the works called Generation X. Uh, but it came close. Image and Wildstorm even ran the initial house ad for Gen X, uh, logo and all, in issue number two of Stormwatch, May 1993. Yeah, the change in title to Gen 13 allowed Wildstorm to take advantage of a particular comic book gimmick, gimmick uh, the variant cover. Uh, Gen 13, number one, this is the ongoing from March 1995, released with 13 variant covers. Mm. That doesn't really make us blink these days. No. <laughs> but in the mid-90s, we really didn't see this many coming out at once. Yeah, they were, so we're going to try to go through them and the artist for them. There was 1A, it's called Charge. It's got a standard action kind of pose by J. Scott Campbell. 1B is Thumbs Up, that's laid back kind of poses by J. Scott Campbell. It kind of looks like Breakfast Clubby, but not completely. Yeah, it's kind of like a, something you'd see a bunch of teens chill, chillaxing, yeah. that we used to call it <laughs> back then, right? Uh, cover 1C, called Little Gen 13. That's like giant, it's a homage to giant size X-Men number one, but with baby characters. That's done by yes. Art Adams himself. Uh, 1D is Barbarigen. It's a heavy metal magazine Conan style cover, even with the like the, the bent logo. Nice. Uh, and that was uh, yeah, that was drawn by Simon Bisley. One uh, E, your friendly neighborhood grunge. Guess what that's yeah. <laughs> Guess what that's playing with. This is a this is a take on Spider-Man number one, the Todd McFarlane one, uh, drawn by John Cleary. We have a 1F, Gen 13 Goes Madison Avenue. It's kind of a commentary on the commercialization of comics, uh -huh. and it's drawn by Michael Golden. But it's in a comic, too, Chris. You see how deep it is? Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Cover 1G, that was the Len Genry. <laughs> God. That was a Victoria's Secret parody by Michael Lopez. <laughs> oh, God, Chris. 1H was... 
Janet Jackson. That was a parody of a Rolling Stone cover by Jason Pearson. You know the cover, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I very. <laughs> she's like almost shirtless, right, or something like yeah, that. Someone, yeah. someone standing behind her, cupping her, cupping right her there. boob, her boobins. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Number one, I is that where you are? Sure. Yep. Uh, the Gen Thirteen Bunch is a Brady Bunch parody by J. Scott Campbell. Uh, this one I actually see a lot. I don't know why. Whenever I, mm. whenever I, I don't see Gen 13 a lot, but I'm thinking of it at conventions. This one's often. Maybe it just catches my eye. Mm. And uh, cover 1J, All Dolled Up. That's a paper doll cover, also by J. Scott Campbell. Uh, we have 1K, Vertigen. It's a <laughs> Sandman-style collage like the uh, Dave McKean ones. Wow, that's uh, cool. Yeah, done by Joe Dunn with, uh, with some uh, photography on it as well. Uh, speaking of photography, 1L, Picto Fiction. It's a uh, play on the Pulp Fiction uh, movie poster with a girl done up to look like our Roxy uh, Freefall right. from uh, Gen 13. And then 1M, the do-it-yourself cover. This is uh, one of those blank covers that the big two have done a pretty good job convincing folks are actually worth buying. It's amazing. Um, I know. And yeah, then, and done then you, 25 years ago. And then you go and then people draw on it and it's uh, worth less than you, you cost to make it anyway <laughs> and it's great when you buy them at a comic shop where there's no one there to draw a picture i know it. well that's for you know you stash it i can't wait to wait on when i wait online three hours to have some guy you know doodle a, a cat puking on my cover yeah, anyway I, I hope i remember my new avengers number 17 when i go to the convention <laughs> wouldn't it be kind of funny though if you had a whole collection of all all your of comics just or just blank covers it'd be like a no frills <laughs> comic box it'd be hilarious yes <laughs> Uh, I'd like to distract from the story. Anyway, let's talk about the characters in Gen 13. We got uh, Fairchild. Real name, Caitlin Fairchild. First appearance was Deathmate Black. It's uh, Image Comics, Valiant, Valiant Comics, September 1993, cover date. Cover price, four ninety five. Current value, per mycomicshop.com. And that is the resource we'll be using throughout the episode. Here, the, uh, we have a comic book realm as the one we're going to be using primarily. I just a this one was hilarious. Yeah, it's, uh, so cover price four ninety five. This one's three twenty in very fine condition. So <laughs> keep hanging on to that one if you have it. Uh, created yes. by Jim Lee, Brandon Choi, and J. Scott Campbell. Daughter of Team Seven member Alex Fairchild. Mother unknown. Brilliant girl attending Princeton University, double majoring in computer science and electrical engineering. Gen active abilities include super strength and invulnerability. Post Flashpoint, when she was absorbed into the DC universe as a researcher for Nowhere, N O W H E R E, she appeared in the Superboy title as well as the short lived Ravagers book. That's why you probably never heard of her. Anyway, <laughs> appeared in a backup strip in Supergirl New 52, number 33, which uh, featured the return of Gen 13, which went nowhere, or was that? N-O-W-H-E-R-E Nowhere <laughs> Next up we have Freefall uh, Real name Roxanne Roxy Spaulding uh, Same creators and first appearance as Fairchild uh, She's the daughter of Team 7 member Alex Fairchild wow. And Gloria Spaulding So uh, I guess she's the half sister to Caitlin Fairchild mm. Or maybe full sister We don't know who the That's true. We don't know who the mother is Yeah. Yeah Now she's kind of the team bad girl Or Girl, mm-hmm. I don't remember how many R's we used in that to spell that during the 90s. I think it was three, but okay. Three? Okay, so girl. <laughs> there we go. Uh, now, we know she's the rebel because she has an asymmetric, asymmetric haircut and she spoke, smokes. Uh, she's a sometimes girlfriend to grunge, and we will get to him shortly. Her gen active abilities include gravity manipulation. Uh, she would also appear in Supergirl 33, which went... 
nowhere. Suffice it to say, everyone we're going to introduce now appeared in that backup strip. Yeah, that, that was the their reintroduction, and uh, you know that might have been not been the best place or time to do it. Apparently, yes. Uh, Rainmaker, real name is Sarah Rainmaker. First appearance, Stormwatch number eight, March nineteen ninety four. Cover date from Image Comics. Cover price is one ninety five. Uh, current value is a dollar seventy in near mint condition. Getting there. Created by uh, Choi Lee and Campbell as well, daughter of Team Seven member. I will, you know, I kind of, I really want to say Alex Fairchild, but no, <laughs> Team Team Seven member Stephen Cal- Callahan. She's an Apache with Gen Active powers of weather manipulation. Most importantly for this story, however, is that she's a lesbian. She doesn't appear much in it, but each time she does, it's all about Roxy's reaction to to her orientation. Yeah, that's pretty much all it is. It's a. Uh, it's very subtle. It's very right. Yeah. Like uh, we have a burnout. Real name Bobby Lane. His first appearance is that Deathmate issue. Creators is the same dudes. Uh, he's the son of Team Seven member John Lynch. Doesn't have a whole lot to do with this story, uh, but his uh, Gen Active powers are that of pyrokinesis. And the star of our show and the star of our hearts, grunge. <laughs> Real name Percival Edmund Chang. This was the 90s, where the grungiest dudes always had the nerdiest names. Not sure why it was ever considered funny, but I guess you had to be there to really uh, get how, mm. how great grunge was. First appearance, you know, created by the same guys. Yeah, we, we know who we're talking about. Son of Team 7 member Philip Chang. Grunge grew up in, get this, Seattle, Washington. <laughs> could, you, could you imagine, uh, you know, and the, the name Grunge? <laughs> and took to skateboarding and surfing too, huh? Wow. Yeah. Really set himself apart from the rabble. Uh, on again, off again with free fall, but he has a thing for Fairchild as well. Gen active powers make him like a hairier, smellier, slackier version of the Absorbing Man. Appeared as a bad guy in the New 52 Superboy comic during the aggressively horrible The Culling storyline, which was horrible. Mm, yes. Um, now, into the book, the first book anyway. Gen 13, number 13A, August. The cover features a team picture and an action pose. Uh, the background is littered with scans of previous Gen 13 cover images. Mm. Is that Jughead in the corner box? Yeah. That's Weird. Right. Okay. Anywho, we open with the Gen 13 kids as they're dropped off at the Horton Plaza Shopping Center in downtown San Diego. It's a real place. Now it's called the Westfield Horton Plaza. Nothing special about it. It's just a mall. All right. Uh, they're all complaining about their stingy allowances for their outing, but. Only one of them knows what they're going to blow their cash on, and that'd be Grunge. Like we said earlier, he's going to be the star of this show. Uh, he's also a comic book fan. Hmm, interesting. That might come into play in a bit. I think so. Uh, now, Roxy and Rainmaker break off to take a look at a bathing suit. Roxy says, I'd look so hot in that get up. Rainmaker goes, No doubt. What'd you say? Oh, nothing. That subtlety. In that's it. that subtlety we were talking about, yeah. <laughs> now, Fairchild looks at books because she's, you know, the smart one. Uh, Bobby finds a Fender Strat signed by Dave Navarro to Whoa. remind us that this is the 90s. Exactly. Let's not forget what era we're in here. Uh, <laughs> although that would still be worth quite a bit right now. But, uh, of course, yes. The Fender Stratocaster is an electric guitar designed in 1954 by Leo Fender, Bill Carson, George Fullerton, and Freddie Tavares. Its design is among the most emulated in electric guitars. Dave Navarro was, at this time, a member of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, though might be best known musically as one of the founders of Jane's Addiction. When the Chili Peppers were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012, Navarro was not part of the induction. 
He also did some reality TV stuff, but we've already spent too much time on this uh, stuff. Yeah, so back to the book. Uh, Grunge spies the world of comic shop, which is so packed with folks that it looks like it might be the second coming of Superman 75. <laughs> but it's not. It's this used to really man. happen, folks. This yes. Comic stores <laughs> used to get packed sometimes, but anyway. Yes, there would be lines outside. Um, now, uh, inside, the shop owner is calling out like he's some carnival barker or uh, auctioneer. Yeah, he says, that's right. It's the limited edition Captain Pyro Chromium cover. The one and only copy available in the entire city, and the only way to get it is by having the winning ticket. Grunge is out there licking his lips. It's it's so mint. It must be mine. Right outside, Fairchild, Roxy, and uh, Anna, their robotic housekeeper, observe and discusses Grunge's fixation with this particular funny book. While the girls think it's silly, Anna the robot drops some knowledge. Did you know that comic books appreciate and value, listener? Well, theory. Anna. That's, that's the going uh, <laughs> uh, theory for sure. Uh, per Anna, this, is ca- this Captain Pyro comic is currently fetching $79.79. Which makes us wonder if it had a cover price of $99.99. Yeah, well, you know, it's definitely something around there. Uh, <laughs> but not so fast. It's also going up in value at a clip of 10% a month. Uh, with the market collapse less than a year away, he's going to have to flip this sucker with the quickness. I mean, is this a business pitch or is this a seat in a comic book? Anyway. Uh, I don't know who they're trying to convince. I know, really, exactly. It's like, come on, like, oh, God, I better get on this, you know. <laughs> so uh, gravy train's never going to end. <laughs> Raidmaker and Burnout mock grunge for being a man-child. Roxy comes to his defense. She says, comic books ain't, aren't just for kids anymore. They're big business, right? And because Grunge is a man-child, he replies with, Spare me the sarcasm, Rox. I mean, they're not any worse than that slippery path poetry books you read. Uh, he means Sylvia Plath, the author of The Bell Jar, obviously. And then uh, <laughs> stomps away. Now, back at the shop, the winning ticket is called. And what do you know? Grunge doesn't win. Instead, the winner is a stereotypical nerd. Braces, glasses, acne, you know the drill. Yeah. Uh, as Grunge stomps away, again... He runs into Fairchild, who suggests he perhaps broaden his comic book reading horizons. She says, Grunge, I'm glad you brought us here. Some of these independent comics are really interesting. You might want to check them out. Oh, gee, Cat, you made me see the light. This alternative stuff is so much better than that Captain Pyro Chromium. Wait for it. Not. <laughs> Classic still. To this day. <laughs> now, later on, we rejoin the team as they sit down for a bite at Bayside's coolest hangout, the Max. That's not the Max, Chris. But it looks just like do you the see, Max. Do you see a magician in there? Huh? Do you? Is Screech? Do you see any of that? No. No, you don't. This isn't the Max. It's Oh Boy Burgers. <sighs> Fine. Fine. I know. We all wish. Inside, Grunge is still upset. That book should have been mine, but instead some geek fanboy has grubby hands all over it. Hey, quit projecting there, buddy. You know, come on. <laughs> uh, he's so distorted over the situation, he can hardly eat, but he managed to eat anyway. Uh, a sure. big, big honkin' burger, in fact. It's soon made disturbingly clear uh, <laughs> that the big guy's burger ain't agreeing with his belly. And after singeing the nose hairs of his teammates, he heads to the bathroom, where he meets a strange man. 
Well, that's not unusual. It happens all the time. Yeah, you got to look out for the bathrooms you're going into, Chris. It's a little scared. Uh, <laughs> this strange man has an offer. He says, I saw you at the comic book store today. What are you, some kind of perv? I am the one person who can help get you a Captain Pyrochromium. What you talking about, Willis? Talk about a good, you know, recent callback. You know, I think this, that show hadn't been on the air for 15 years by the time this came out. The strange toilet dweller opens his jacket, revealing a Captain Pyrochromium. He offers it to Grunge at the low, low price of his eternal soul. Grunge goes, uh, sure, you got it. Is that it? Do I, do I get it now? Uh, a gleeful grunge runs back to his friends and shows them his bounty from the bowl, and then he passes out. Hmm, he's awakened by a pixie who looks just like Roxy. She goes by the name Tinkerfall, which is a portmanteau of Tinkerbell and Freefall, I'm guessing. And yeah. <laughs> Freefall is, of course, Roxy's code name. So you, so you get an idea, you get an idea of the visual. Basically, they ripped yes. off Tinkerbell it, and, and stuck <laughs> yes, Roxy's like body in it. Yeah. yeah, it's Roxy with wings. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> She tells him that he's entered the land of S.A., and S.A. stands for sequential art. Uh, this was a term coined in 1985 by Will Eisner in his book, Comics and Sequential Art. Uh, it's really the first book to examine the language and form of comics and not just the history of comics and uh, comic strips. Yeah. Uh, his only way back home would be to meet the Great Wizard of S.A., or the Great Wizard of Sa, maybe. Sure. Uh, <laughs> the journey to whom begins... In a town called Riverdale. And yeah, we, we mean that. Riverdale. I think the exact one, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not long before he runs right into Archie and the gang, drawn in the Archie style. And pretty convincingly, too, I must say. Yes. Uh, of course, we have uh, Archie Andrews. That's the red-haired oh. kid with the tic-tac-toe on the side of his head. <laughs> we got uh, Jughead Jones, Archie's crown-wearing pal with the burger fixation that always looks half awake. Betty Cooper, Archie's blonde, sometimes girlfriend, kind of, we don't really know what's going on there. Uh, first appearance was Pep Comics, number 22, December 1941. That was by MLJ uh, Archie Comics. Value for per comic book realm is $280,000. Yeah, wow. That's a little higher than uh, Deathmate, I think. <laughs> Whoa, you know, and just because, and this is just a story in that comic, this isn't anyway. Yeah. But, uh, Created by John Goldwater, who owned Archie Comics, Bob Montana, and Vic Bloom. Oh, so there is Vic Veronica Victoria. No, it's Veronica Lodge. <laughs> uh, this is Archie's brunette, sometimes girlfriend. Uh, she first appeared in Pep Comics number 26. Uh, it's April 1942 by MLJ. Uh, value per uh, comic book realm is $13,000. Wow. And she has, yeah, I know it. And she has the same creators. Uh, Reggie Mantle, Archie's rival and all-around jerkface. Uh, his first appearance, Jackpot Comics, number five. This is spring 1942 from MLJ. Value per uh, comic book realm is $7,500, and he has the same creators. I, I would th I would be happy with the $7,500 one, I too. Think so. I'd be like, whoa, that's uh, a, lot of, a lot of comic book <laughs> money in there. So uh, over in Riverdale, Grunge joins the gang as they head over to Pop's, to Pop's Chocolate Shop, even, to grab a bite to eat. Didn't Grunge just eat a burger that didn't agree with the stomach? Yeah, he's over that. Uh, I really want to say again that the scene is is drawn Archie comic style and really convincingly, except for Grunge. It's really, yep. which really, it's it really, it's well done. It looks kind of like a Who Frame Roger Rabbit type of scenario. <laughs> uh, he notices the jukebox and asks, "They have any B star 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 H star 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 surfers on it?" Oh boy. 
yeah. All right. The BH Surfers were a band, better known as the <laughs> Butthole Surfers. They were kind of popular back then in the mid-90s, probably. Definitely more so for their outlandish name than the music. Uh, they really, I think, had their heyday in the late 80s, personally, but uh, <laughs> couldn't really say I followed their career that closely. In 1996, they released the album Electric Larry Land, which caused a little bit of an uproar from concerned citizens shopping at Kmart. Made it so the album had to be recalled from several big department stores and re-released with altered cover art censoring the band's name as B Star 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 H Star 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 Surfers. The original cover art featured a cartoon image of a man with a pencil jammed in his ear, while the edited version featured a squirrel. So, same thing, really. Cute little guy. Exactly. Back to the book. There is a comic book we're reading here. Uh, Betty and Veronica head over to the Duke, and we can see them through grunge vision, which depicts them in normal J. Scott Campbell style. But he then looks at the fellas, who are also in J. Scott style. It's kind of a neat visual. Uh, but I, I got to say, I mentioned this to you before, like, yeah. the variance isn't that much between the Archie uh, girls and the J. Scott. They just kind of get, like, just more distinct faces. That's really it. Pretty much. Pretty much. It's less less baby fat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, at this point, uh, Tinker Fault smacks Grunge in the head and lambasts him for wasting time. After all, he's uh, got a wizard to look for. Uh, for a brief moment, we actually get to see grunge in Archie. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, he looks a little bit less grungy than normal. Uh, before splitting, grunge whispers some pickup lines into Betty and Veronica's ears, which must have been pretty vulgar because they each give him a slap. Or maybe he actually asked for a slap. Maybe. Possibly. Yes. <laughs> now, uh, Reggie approaches our man, and jerk face that he is, sends him off to a place called the Valley of the Dolls. Grunge gleefully steps out as a uh, concerned Archie steps forward. Archie says, Reggie, you shouldn't have done that. What did I do? You forgot to warn him about the bad girls. Oops. Oh, and that takes us right over to Gen 13, number 13B. That was October of that uh, year. Yeah, it came out in October. I mean, this is I know this is a little a, while later. Right, you know, <laughs> we had to wait a little while to, to see the amazing conclusion of, uh, you know, Archie and, and Grunge. But uh, So this cover has uh, Grunge and Bone back-to-back fighting off some stupid, stupid rat tails. Uh, there's an Asian fellow with a four on his hat in the corner box. Hmm. All right. Uh, <laughs> picking up where we left off last issue, which would have been a three-month wait if we were in real time. Three months for one third of a comic, really, is what we waited yeah. here. Yeah, we stopped to smell the roses. Roses. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Grunge approaches the Valley of the Dolls. All of the dolls are of the Teenage Mutant Ninja variety. This is where he meets the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Their first appearance. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Number one, May 1984, from uh, Mirage Studios. Created by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. Uh, value per comic book realm, $4,000. Hmm. Uh, it would appear at this point that titles have fallen on hard times. Grunge approaches him and goes, What happened to you guys? Donatello says, Things were chugging along real nice there for a while, you know. To Leonardo continues, Then suddenly we got 86 by the Frenzy Beast and his Power Ranger peons. Michelangelo goes on, But at least we got to do three movies. Raphael rounds out the uh, the troop here. All we want to do now is be just just be comic book heroes again, like back in the old days. If only more people thought that way, huh, Chris? That's a fact. And not the precise opposite. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we can see that the yellow brick road leading to the Wizard of Sa has been demolished. Must be that frenzy beast Leo was talking about. 
Turtles tell Grunge to follow that path to destruction, but be careful when he reaches the freelance forest, which I thought was a funny <laughs> little gag. Yep. Uh, we follow Grunge into the forest where he happens upon Bone. He's tied to a spit being cooked by a stupid, stupid rat creature. Uh, this character is Phone Bone, first appearance in Bone Number 1, July 1991, from Cartoon Books, created by Jeff Smith. Value per comic book realm is $750. There were 55, it's a 55-issue series published irregularly between 1991 and 2004 under both cartoon books and image comics, and, uh, but the collections are evergreen, as far as yeah. I know. Oh, yeah. I, they, they are always out, always, always getting pumped. Yeah, there's even an omnibus of the entire run yep. uh, from uh, cartoon books. Um, now, Grunge and Ra, uh, Tinkerform, uh, they <laughs> back the right. <laughs> And Grunge discovers that his gen active powers are gone. He has no superpowers at this point. Uh, after the rescue, Grunge and Bone decide to travel together. They happen upon a fountain where Grunge decides to get a drink. But this ain't no ordinary fountain. It's Bean World. Whoa. What the hell's Bean World? Well, <laughs> you got I'll tell you, Chris, I, I didn't know until I read this comic, but I know now. <laughs> well, Tales of the Bean World here. First appearance, Tales of the Bean World number one. Value per comic book realm, $3. Uh, a comic created by Larry Marta, which features beans. Okay. Living beans, drawn in a minimalistic style. Uh, this will be published under several imprints, including Eclipse Comics, Dark Horse Comics, and self-published under Bean World Press. Sure. Uh, Grudge grabs a handful of water, which he's happy to discover is full of beans. Aces, there are some tasty-looking beans in here, too. One bean says, Watch out, everyone! We're under attack! Uh, this ought to hit the spot. We're about to be chewed! <clears throat> kind of chewy. Help! Ouch! Tinkerfall says, Grunge, I don't think those were ordinary beans. And Bone goes, She's right! Those are little bean people. We must be in bean world. And so Grunge spits them out. He doesn't want anything alive in his mouth, which is a good, sensible way to be. It's a the, good uh, code. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, the beans <laughs> decide, no harm, no foul, and even give the gang a hint on how to find the wizard. They've got to get this meet with the young Turks in image land. Ugh. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the more subtlety there. <laughs> uh, they part com they part company, and Grunge gets to say "cool beans," which is really what we are all waiting for him to say for the past couple of pages. <laughs> well, we next join our travelers at a precipice overlooking Imageland, and it's pretty much exactly what you think it is. The land split up into different fiefdoms, each signifying one of the founding members of the publishing imprint. This is also where Bone parts ways. We're not sure if this was his actual delivery to Image. But we're going to guess that it was, because it happened right around this time, right? Yeah. Uh, his final for now, Cartoon Books Comics, was 21, September 95, cover date. His first image comic was 22, February 99. And this appearance does fall between those two, so it probably... Negotiations were on the table, I would think, at least at this time. Yeah, he was, he was on his way. Yeah. Um, now, Bone does leave, and he goes towards a gate with uh, Image Town on it. And also features references to Astro City and Pit. Mm -hmm. uh, Astro City by Kurt Busiek and Brent Anderson with, uh, you know, covers and uh, I think story assists by Alex Ross. Mm -hmm. Launched from Image Comics in 1995. Uh, second volume would follow in 1996 from Image Comics imprint Wildstorm's imprint Homage <laughs> Comics. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yes, uh, issue one from August 95, comic book realm value, $12. 
And it's also uh, coming out from Vertigo Comics yeah. today, right? And they also reprinted all the old stuff too, so that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, that those original comics are worth even further devalued through that, you know. <laughs> and uh, we have Pit. He was created by Dave. I'm sorry, Dale Keown for his small press company, Full Bleed Studios, published via Image Comics. Pitt's first appearance was Young Blood number four, February 1993. Comic book realm value. Uh, I think they got the decimal point wrong here because it says ten dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> poor everybody. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> Our first look into Image Land is proper is the Highbrow Club. Highbrow Entertainment was Eric Larson's Image Comics imprint and featured as, as its logo a man, perhaps even maybe Larson himself, with a giant forehead. Uh, outside the club stands Savage Dragon as he bounces both Wonder Woman and the Hulk from the party, which seems kind of weirdly random. And, and it, it is like <laughs> it is really them too uh, in this instance, and we'll see later they have kind of analogs for. But anyway, I thought it was it is strange. Um, we ought to mention here that two more, that two of the more outspoken critics of Image and Larson at this time were Peter David and John Byrne. John Byrne was even vilified in the pages of Savage Dragon as the not-so-subtle Johnny Redbeard. Peter David was writing The Hulk at this time, and John Byrne was writing Wonder Woman, so maybe? Ipso facto. Yeah. Uh, Savage, Dragon go- Savage Dragon says, I told you guys for the last time. You gotta have a sense of humor if you want to fit in around here. Yeah, so it's pretty pretty clear what he might have been trying to yeah. say here. Anyway, Grunge's uh, <laughs> tour continues as he passes a barn covered in cow spots. And surrounded by puddles of milk, we can see that the words Top Cow have been pulled off the building. There's also a sign on the gate which reads, Relocated. And this was right during a time in which the image founder behind Top Cow, Mark Silvestri, was getting ready to break away from the group. Due in no small part to a belief that fellow founder Rob Liefeld was trying to poach some of his top talent for his own Extreme Studios imprint. Uh, this is a whole long story that we're definitely going to get into one day. It's really, it's really interesting. But yes. uh, the name usually bandied about uh, is the eventual creator of Fathom and founder of Aspen MLT, the late Michael Turner. Yes. Uh, the four-issue miniseries Shattered Image was going on at the same time as the Gen 1313s. Uh, that ran from August through December 1996 cover date, and that was set to facilitate breaking up uh, the until this this time the shared image universe. So, breaking all the little fiefdoms into their own things so they don't have to share uh, right. panel space and ownerships and stuff. Um, now, by the time Shattered Image wrapped, it was actually Lee, uh, Leefield. It was actually Liefeld who was shown the door. And so I wait for the rest of your life, you know that. <laughs> it's always going to be Leefield. Yeah. Uh, now, we'll eventually do a weird comics history on Image Comics, and it will probably be a doozy. Yeah. Speaking of Rob Leefield, man, Grunge overhears a couple of uh, hyperposed, teeth gritted, heavily armed and armored types with very poor posture. They're upset that there appears to be a lean on their blood cord. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, the one called Captain America says, They can't do that to us. Black Frag is the other, and he goes, They put a lean on our blood quarters? They can't do that to us, Captain Avenger. That ain't the half of it, Black Frag. The other young jerks, they, they've kicked us out of image land. This is so extreme. They can't do this to us. So a couple of notes. Notes. First of all, this uh, they, he, Scott Campbell does a really good job doing it. Liefeld here. It's I mean, excellent. it's it's almost like spot on. 
Uh, You'd never guess. I, you definitely, if you did a whole <laughs> book like this, you might think it was Liefeld at a, at a glance. For sure. Uh, but also, Rob at this point was helming the Avengers and Captain America half of Marvel's Heroes Reborn line. So Captain Avenger is very likely a nod to that. Uh, definitely, this is referring to Rob Liefeld. There can be no question about it. Yeah. I suppose we ought to mention he is not drawn with a triple-sized E-bosom here, although he, he could have done that if he wanted to. Yes. Also, uh, as of this recording, Youngblood is once again being published by Image Comics, if you can believe it. Warning, though, if you're listening to this anytime after the summer of 2017, <laughs> your guess is as good as ours. Mm-hmm. Then again, if you're somehow listening to this five years from the summer of 2017, there's a good chance it's been back yeah. a few times. And if you listen to this 20 years from now, then you might even be able to get a <laughs> trade paperback of the first and only arc. So good luck. <laughs> Thanks to you. Uh, you can check out Cosmic Treadmill episode number 22 from April 17th for our full Youngblood celebration. And it was a celebration, folks, I it tell was. you. This li- That's all right. We had a great time with that one. Um, the Liefeldian duo informs Groans that the wizard was heading over to Wildstorm Keep, and so our man has some direction to head in. Uh, along the way, he passes a pile of young crud garbage featuring a bad rock suit with a price tag of seventy-six million four hundred ninety-five thousand. Yeah, bad rock suit value in 2017. Uh, we're just going to go with priceless. What do you think that weirdly specific number is? Do you have? Can you I don't know. That? I I thought that's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. I really wonder if it's like maybe more an inside very yeah, baseball inside gig, stuff. Yeah. But you know, too much. <laughs> I can speculate too much on what it might be. Uh, so Grunt and Tinkerfall arrive at the Wildstorm Keep, where they find themselves swarmed by kitty versions of the members of DV8. You remember DV8, right? Of course. Of course you do. And yeah, if you say it the right way, it sounds like deviate, but it referred to in comics as deviance. Yeah, which is close enough. Sure. Uh, deviate uh, was about a group of gen actives who made their first appearance in Gen 13 number 6, cover date November 1995. Created by J. Scott Campbell, Brandon Choi, Warren Ellis, and Umberto, Umberto Ramos. Uh, the DV8 series actually had a pretty respectable run of 32 issues, sure. plus an issue zero and a wizard number one half. That's not too bad. It not ran from us. No, it ran from September 96 to November 99. Uh, the Tots run up to Grunge in hopes that he is their daddy. Uh, <laughs> he asks him about the wizard, and he's informed that the only one who can answer questions about him is Doctor Frankenlynch. Uh, this is uh, John. Yes. Oh, <laughs> this is referring to John Lynch, who's kind of like the den father to Gen 13. He's kind of their keeper. Uh, he was a secret agent type. Uh, I hear he was kind of based loosely on Nick Fury. Uh, he's uh, also the leader of Team 7 for a while. He is also Gen Active. His first appearance was Wildcats Covert, Covert Action Teams number 1, August 1992. Comic book realm value. I think they, I think they got the uh, decimal point wrong again. Yeah. Five dollars. Yeah, five dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Grunge heads up a long and windy set of stairs to meet Franken Lynch and his henchman Igor. Igor? No, Igor. Man. <laughs> Very good. Igor <laughs> is Jim Lee. He's carrying yes. a glowing red X, which he refers to as his good luck charm. It's usually associated with the superhero group. You know, that would spoil it. Let's not let's not yeah, give that away right here. Uh, he's also wearing a Fantastic Four hat because he was doing Heroes Reborn at that time, and he was doing the FF. Uh, he was drawn to be really beady-eyed. If, you, if I didn't have anything to do with this, 
if you know if he wasn't involved, we might call it offensive. I definitely thought that when I saw it. Uh, yeah. It's like yikes. <laughs> Anywho, Ligor hands Grunge the red X, which sends him out into the alley to seek answers he so desperately needs to have. And now, if you're ever in an alleyway in the Image Universe, you kind of know what you're eventually going to run into, and it's Spawn. Spawn is a former Marine, Al Simmons, who, after being murdered by Youngblood member Chapel, Jessica Priest. Who, excuse me. It's a. Uh, it's Jessica Priest. Uh, Chapel's owned by Rob Liefeld. They couldn't use him in the movie, so they had to change it. Okay, so Spawn is a former Marine. Al Simmons, who was murdered, sent to hell, made a deal with the demon um, Malabogia. Bulgia. There you go, Malabolgia, where he traded his soul so he might see his wife again. He returns as Spawn five years later, only to find that his wife had married his best friend and had a daughter. And we will eventually throw Spawn on the treadmill. We've done uh, two of the four image mm-hmm. debuts, so that is on deck eventually. First appearance was Spawn number one, May 1992, created by Todd McFarland. Comic book, realm value, comic book realm value is respectable $30. Not bad. Yeah. Uh, Spawn advises Grunge that the wizard has already left to do battle with the Frenzy Beast. He suggests that, if, that they, he suggests that it might just be something special about Grunge, and he might be the one capable of freeing the land of SA from the Beast, but he can't do it alone. Now we ask you, who would be mad enough to join Grunge on his quest? Probably Madman, I'm guessing. You're probably right. Madman, his real name, <laughs> Frank Einstein. First appearance, Creatures of the Id from October 1990. Uh, this came out from Caliber Comics. He was created by Michael Allred. Comic book realm value, 50 bucks. Sweet. If you got that mm-hmm. one, they got a nice, nice 50, 50 sawbones or whatever 50 bones. they call them. Now we go to the final of the, the Gen 13, number 13 trio, which is Gen 13, number 13C. This uh, had came out early November, so not too, kind of hot off the heels of the other one, yeah. Uh, cover looks like an homage to old fantasy stories with Grunge holding his chromium cover aloft. The girls of Gen 13 are huddled around his legs. The corner box features she... Think. Yeah, we pick up with Grunge, Tinker, Fall, and Madman as they make their way down Route 666, where they run into Max and the Jungle Princess. Max, with two X's, first appearance was Primer number 5, December 1992, from Comico, created by Sam Keith. Current book, comic book, rem val- cur- Current comic book realm value is ninety dollars. So, uh, wow. are all these characters listed in ascending value now from here on out? <laughs> uh, the Max was adapted into an animated series on MTV as part of a program called Oddities. It ran for thirteen, ten to fifteen minute episodes from April eighth through June nineteenth, nineteen ninety five. The Max is currently being published by IDW in maximized remastered format. And Jungle Princess just appears to be Rainmaker done up as a stock jungle character. Yes. Uh, Sound of Hooves thunders over the field, and it's now that we finally meet those bad girls that Archie warned us about. Yeah, and those girls are Lady Death. That's Lady Mortem to us, pal. Mm. Angela from Spawn. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and Thor, not... That other comic anymore. Oh, oh, yeah, oh that okay. was that's and, uh, the old days. <laughs> yes, uh, and uh, Zealot from the Wildcats. All right. So, <laughs> Lady Death, uh, p- first appearance was Evil Ernie, number one, December 1991, cover date from Eternity Comics, created by Brian Polito. Current comic book realm value is $160. Not bad. Yeah. Uh, Angela, first appearance, spawn number nine, March number. No- March 1993, created by Neil Gaiman and Todd McFarlane, an angelic bounty hunter in opposition to Spawn. Perhaps, 
Oh, definitely more noteworthy for being part of that seemingly interminable uh, Neil Gaiman versus Todd McFarlane yeah. lawsuit. Uh, Gaiman uh, ultimately won ownership and sold the rights to the character to Marvel Comics. She made her Marvel uh, debut in Age of Ultron number 10, covered it in June 2013, and has since joined the Guardians of the Galaxy and has been revealed as being an Asgardian. Sure. Actually, the long-lost sister of Thor and Loki. Well, that's convenient. I actually think it's a, that the, <laughs> the deal between Gaiman and Marvel, it, you know, involved Miracle Man. Uh, it, did. It, it was It was, there's... You know, wording in there that we don't really that we we're not privy to in that uh, deal, but yeah, it just kind of it's sort of a weird fallout from it. Was this character got shunted over to Marvel? It was almost an afterthought when it when it came through, but uh, yeah, maybe maybe he felt like, well, I'm not going to write her again, so <laughs> <laughs> you know, here you go, folks. Uh, then there was uh, Zealot first appearance, Wildcats covered Action Teams number one, August 1992, and you could check out Cosmic Treadmill episode 28 from February 26. For our full-blown wild cat extravaganza, another one we had a real good time with. Yes, it was a very good one. Uh, now, let's see if we can get through a page without veering off into a tangent. Uh, no. Damn it. Not going to happen. Uh, just as Lady Mortem is about to fillet grunge, she is halted by the arrival of she and <laughs> Kachu and Francine from Strangers in Paradise. Okay, let's start with she. Real name, Anna Ishikawa. First appearance, Razor Annual Number 1 from 1993. This hit uh, from Crusade Comics. She was created by... Uh, <laughs> she was created by Billy Tucci. <laughs> uh, catch you and Francine. We have Katina Marie Chusansky. Uh, you get it? Very good. And uh, Helen Francine Peters starred in the long-running black-and-white independent, mostly self-published uh, comic called Strangers in Paradise by Terry Moore via Abstract Studios. That was his uh, self-publishing house there. Right. It dealt with the complicated lives of the couple, and eventually the Yakuza gets involved like they tend to do. Yeah. Uh, trust us, it's a lot better than our silly one-sentence synopsis uh, would tell you. It's it's actually really good. Um Strangers in Paradise ran 106 issues from 1993 through 2007, some of which came out through uh, <clears throat> Image Comics, <laughs> Image Comics imprint, Wildstorm's Homage Comics imprint. Wow! Oh boy, they should have, they probably had to crack another imprint to get another uh, run out. I think so. So okay, Lady Death and she they have some contentious words, and the bad girls decide to split the fight another day. And super, Grunge is super pleased to see she. Not to sound ungrateful or nothing, Shira, but you look like one bad babe. My name is She, and I'm not really bad. I'm just drawn that way. Yeah, you and Jessica Rabbit. And no, we're not going to give bios for Shira or Jessica Rabbit. Okay, they're not. They're just mentioned. Catchu <laughs> uh, reveals that the wizard lent them the car they arrived in, and Madman will be able to show him the way. But first, some uncomfortable sexual tension. Yes, Jungle Princess, who is totally Rainmaker, goes, Ah, oh, Tinkerfall, you look <laughs> you look a little bruised and battered from the fight. Shall I kiss it and make it all better? Uh, thanks, but I think I'll piss. There you go. Uh, tired of cameos yet? We sure hope not, because we got a few more. <laughs> Even, I mean, right up to the very end, folks. Uh, as Grunge and company roll up on the frontier, they run into the trio of Hellboy and Monkey Man and O'Brien. Got Hellboy. First full appearance was in John Byrne's Next Men number 21, covered 8 December 1993 from Dark Horse Comics, created by Mike Mignola. Current comic book realm value of that is $70. Hellboy is a well-meaning son of a demon. 
starred in two feature films directed by Guillermo del Toro and depicted by Ron Perlman as the actor. Uh, must have saved a ton of money on makeup, just had to stick <laughs> to uh, you know tin cans to his head and paint it red. <laughs> And then Monkey Man and O'Brien, created by Art Adams in 1993. The duo usually appeared in anthologies and backups for Dark Horse Comics between 1993 and 1999, though they have had limited series through Dark Horse's Legend imprint. Now back to the story. (laughs) At this point, we finally meet the Frenzy Beast. Mm -hmm. Now I want you to picture a generic giant red monster. Yeah. Uh, only with people trying to escape from its stomach. Um, he's also holding the wizard. Who we totally don't recognize. It's a dude with an eye patch, probably somebody important in the Gen 13 universe, but maybe we don't know who he is. At least it's not Garib Seamus. No, we, we think it's not. I don't know. Maybe he could put an eye patch on. I have no idea. <laughs> Madman says, Guys, meet Grunge. He's the solution to our problem. He has the Corobium cover. Huh? What's my comic book have to do with anything? O'Brien says, so you're the one Frenzy Beast is after. <laughs> the Frenzy Beast turns his attention towards grunge. Ah, uh, yes. I sense the tattooed dwarf possesses the prize I seek. Give it to me, and you shall have your heart's desire. Wizard says, no, don't listen to him. You must. Enough. If you won't give it to me, I'll simply instruct my zombies to pry it from your lifeless fingers. <laughs> And so, Marvel's zombies rise from the ground. Or at least one zombie's wearing a Spider-Man t-shirt. Yeah. Uh, now, before Marvel Zombies was a played-out concept involving actual Marvel characters as zombies, a Marvel zombie was what you referred to as a, uh, you know, die-hard, hardcore Marvel Yeah, fan. somebody that just went and bought everything off the racks, which was something you, you could actually afford to do at some time and, and not be a yeah. millionaire. I've still got my uh, my poker chip. I'm ten years clean. Oh really? Okay. From from doing the whole kitten caboodle. <laughs> from my zombie dump. Yeah. Uh, Monkey Man says they're everywhere. O'Brien says, "Oh, sorry, I did your Monkey Man." But anyway, let's move on. <laughs> O'Brien says, "Oog, acting in unison without a mind of their own." Man Man says, "There are just too many of them." Old boy goes, "We're being overwhelmed. It's up to you, Grunge." To which Grunge goes. No way, Jose. I'm mashing out. <laughs> what a guy. <laughs> what a... Uh, before our man can mash out, he turns into Fairfield. He runs into Fairfield, Fairchild, dressed up like a Disney princess. She introduces herself as a good witch and has some words of encouragement for grunge. Well, she doesn't, but her friend does. And her friend is... You ready for this? <laughs> motivational speaker Tony Robbins. Yeah, I'm not sure if we can do a 1950s gleam on the teeth sound effect, shing, you know, something like that, but just yeah. know that it's there. And yeah. uh, Tony Robbins, a real human person, was born Anthony Mahavoric on February 29th, 1960, in North Hollywood, California. Hey, a leap day, baby. And he is a motivational speaker, and you might know him from the infomercials that don't star Ron Popeil or Matthew Lesko. He's the one with teeth and real nice teeth too folks very white and actually yes, actually he does giant. he does still do speeches today believe it or not of course yeah. now anyway uh, fairchild the good witch introduces him he says why thank you good witch i just want you to know how thrilled i am to be here today you you're the dude in those infomercials that's right grunge over the past few years i've helped millions transfer their lives with my special personal power program and I can do the same for you. Really? You know, I was a lot like you when I was a kid. 
going nowhere with nothing to my name. But one day, I changed all that by learning to master my life. And today, I'm a successful entrepreneur, running my own multinational, multi-million dollar corporation. By following my passion, I now drive a Ferrari, live in a fabulous mansion, and have the life of my dreams. Wouldn't you like to have this quality of life, too? Who wouldn't? But how? By unleashing the power within you and awakening the giant inside. Take control of your life, Grunge, and harness the forces that shape your life. Follow your passion and forge your destiny. You know something? You're right, Tony. And our newly invigorated Grunge runs to fight the Marvel zombies, when suddenly the Red X good luck charm begins to glow. The zombies get sliced and diced by Wolverine yeah. <laughs> with his bone claws. This is the most this random, book, though, like, it? cameo. Like, what? What? Okay, why not? <laughs> and, he's, and he's got his bone claws, which means that this book does Marvel continuity better than current Marvel does. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> now, for a full bio of Wolverine, you can check out uh, the archives, uh, Cosmic Treadmill, episode 31 from March 19th. Uh, for the quick and dirty, however, we'll give you his real name, James Howlett. First appearance, Incredible Hulk, 181. November 1974, created by Len Wein, John Romita Sr., and Herb Trimpey. Wolverine says, I'm the best there is at what I do, eh? Who are you, masked man? Just think of me as a new friend. Now you better get going and finish this job. Uh, with the zombies out of the way, Grunge can turn his full attention toward the frenzy beast. Holding the chromium cover aloft, he shouts, Listen up, Frenzy Beast. I don't know what your game is, but I'm here to shut you down. The Frenzy Beast responds with, Chill, dude. Wild hostility. (laughs) And he now (laughs) looks like Grunge. He has the same face. Yes. (laughs) He continues, Don't you see, Grunge? The two of us, we're the same. I only want your chromium cover so I can complete my set. Surely you can understand that. He offers Grunge a trade, the chromium cover for his dream life of being a rock and roll superstar. And he considers it for a moment, but ultimately commits the worst sin a comic book fan can. He tears his Captain Pyro chromium cover in half. And he must be pretty strong to tear through that, because those, those covers are pretty thick. <laughs> and usually with, chromiums, a, yeah. with a lamination on them, too, you know, you really got to get, sometimes you got to nick it with your teeth, you know, and then tear <laughs> yes. it down there. You need to cheat it. Uh, now, uh, when he does this, there's a tremendous explosion, followed by blackness, and then voices. Grunge, uh, he's surrounded by his teammates at Gen, in Gen 13, his eyes open to find them huddled around him. He sort of has this Wizard of Oz moment here, like you would have, might have figured this whole story was sort of a Wizard of Oz-type scenario, <laughs> where he shares that he had a dream, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there. And it was all because of this stupid comic book. And then as Grunge sits up, the stereotypical nerd from earlier, the one that won the Chromium comic book in the first place, shows up and he says, Stop! Hold it right there! That's my Captain Pyro! Some jerk stole it from me when I came out of the store! I've been going out of my mind looking for it! Here you go, buddy. It's all yours. You're just gonna give it back to me? There's more to life, my man. A line which earns him a bit of a kissy FaceTime with Roxy. And that's the end. Though, I think we got to mention that the inside back cover features an ad for Tony <laughs> Robbins Seminars. Yes. So call the 800 number and let them know you read this issue of Gen 13. The ad totally say that, by the way, and they'll rush you 
a special Power Talk CD from Tony for only $5. Amazing. Do uh, you think he, he gave Jim Lee the power? Is that what happened? I don't know. Do not delay, folks. This is co-signed by tennis champion Andre Agassi. Baywatch with two words. Star Pamela Anderson. The entire San Antonio Spurs organization and the President of the United States. <laughs> they don't say which one, but we're gonna just figure that they had to save something for yeah. that CD. We don't know. It could it could have been Clinton. It would have been the president at the time. Could have been uh, Lincoln. <laughs> You're gonna have to get to see to find out. <laughs> so boy, we we have gone on probably longer than we have Ooh. ever gone in the first half. I think maybe not, but uh, we have. <laughs> I don't we, know. I think we do need a little break here. We need to uh, cool our jets, rest our throats. Uh, you know. Do all those things, and we will come back in a moment to wrap everything up. This is your last chance, Callahan. Miss Fairchild? Yes? Welcome to the finish base, Fräulein Fairchild. Her name's Caitlin Fairchild, 18 years old. High IQ. She has a great gen factor potential. She doesn't look like much to me. I agree, but this one was scouted by one of our operatives. I've read her files, and I believe that she is the progeny of one of the rogue Gen 12s, a member of Team 7. I think you'll agree that this one deserves special attention. I'll keep an eye on her. Thank you, Miss. You're not going to hurt anybody. back uh, we are still talking gen 13 we're gonna wrap everything up uh the gen 13 wrap up here uh long story short we don't know a whole lot no. um personally i only collected the first few issues the few issues of the series before i fell off uh actually these 13s were read long after the fact um and uh, we would hate to give incorrect information just for the sake of filling time. Um, we will go ahead and name a few of the creators who worked on the property after Lee, Choi, and Campbell left, though. Uh, the next ones up were John Arcudi and Gary Frank. They brought with them a more realistic, less cheesecakey style, a more uh, grounded storytelling. Uh, and this is back, we should note, when uh, Gary Frank characters had more meat on their bones. Hmm. They didn't all look sick. Yeah. Now uh, Scott Lobdell would follow, and he brought the back book to the brought the book back the <laughs> to its uh, lighter-hearted, uh, sexier roots. Um, Adam Warren rounded out the volume, and you can tell which ones are his because the cover art is uh, manga instead of a more Western look. Wow! Uh, the volume ended. Oh. No, no, I'm just, it just uh, went in a whole different direction, you know. It did, it did, <laughs> uh, and the volume ended with the entire team dying in an explosion. Hmm. Sure. Chris Claremont would write the next volume. I uh, remember the issue zeros were uh, 13 cents. Oh, wow. And uh, 
I did try it because it was 13 cents and it was a, uh, it was cheaper than a Tylenol PM. Yeah, um, <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if he'd be the guy I would think to put in something like this, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> this volume, uh, I think it went like less than a year, and it ended with the revelation that the team actually didn't die in the explosion; they were just sent to another dimension. Which, if you read comic books, you probably could have guessed was the was yeah. the truth. Uh, the latest attempt to resurrect Gen 13 occurred in 2006 and was written primarily by Gail Simone. Didn't appear to have any continuity ties with the earlier volumes. It took a part. It took part in the Wildstorm Armageddon event, which served as a sort of soft reboot for the line. We covered this in greater deal during that Wildcats episode I mentioned earlier. Uh, and as mentioned, some of the characters were part of the new 52 Superboard title, and the entire team appeared in a backup strip in Supergirl 33, their official debut. Which went nowhere. We never saw mm -hmm. it again. So they could pop up anytime, folks. It's sort of uh, they're lurking around the corner. Uh, where they go from here, we just don't know. Um, you know, they're, they're, there's an ongoing now Wildstorm from DC Comics. Uh, it's but it's only got one title. Uh, in it's supposed to be like a whole boutique imprint. Warren Ellis is writing one title. He doesn't tend to go more than six issues. So who knows what's happening? Yep. And uh, but anyway, they, I did read couple of the Wildstorm, and they weren't in it, so. Uh, in 2000, uh, an animated feature was released, directed by Kevin Altieri, and produced by Wildstorm. It was distributed by Touchstone Pictures. First screening was at Wizard World Chicago from July 17 through 19 in 1998. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, let's finish up uh, J. Scott Campbell. On uh, Gen 13, Campbell was co-writer on the series until issue 18, and he was the regular artist who, and he left the book after issue 20. This is uh, June of 1997. Uh, in 1998, Campbell, uh, together with fellow comic artist Joe Maguara, Humberto Ramos, they founded the Cliffhanger imprint as part of the Wildstorm pro pro Productions here. So we have an imprint within an imprint. Yeah. If only they were an imprint of homage. That, that, then um, I'd really be like, wow, now we're really getting small. <laughs> Now, Scott recalls, uh, most of the first Image comics were superheroes. It was neat that Humberto Ramos, Joe Maguire, and myself weren't doing superheroes. Joe's was fantasy. Uh, Joe did, uh, what was it, Battle Chasers. Uh, Humberto did uh, Crimson, I think, and that was a vampire story. Uh, I was really pleased that people liked it. It was very different, it was very risky, and it worked out. Uh, his uh, his uh, participation in that group was a Danger Girl, and that... Uh, that launched in March 1998, cover date. Uh, Danger Girl series led to a video game for the PlayStation, as well as several comic spin-offs in the forms of limited series and one-shots that were all drawn by different artists. Uh, most of the spin-offs featured story outlines from Campbell himself. In August 2005, Campbell published Wildsiders uh, with a Z, which he co-created with his Danger Girl writing partner, Andy Hartnell. In February 2006, the 200th issue of Nintendo Power included a poster featuring prominent Nintendo characters drawn by Campbell in his unique art style, along with an interview whereby Campbell recalled his memories of the Invent the Ultimate video game contest. At the Wizard World 2006 comic convention held in Los Angeles, Marvel Comics announced that Campbell signed an exclusive contract with the company and he was going to work on a Spider-Man series with writer Jeff Loeb. Uh, series never ended up materializing. That's why you probably don't remember it. He <laughs> says uh, there were there are two issues drawn. Ultimately, it ended up falling into limbo because both Jeff Loeb and myself kept having other obligations pop up and distract us. In the end, it fell into a disarray. Part of it was that the farther it fell, fell behind, the more it fell out of continuity. And the more it fell out of continuity, they had less and less of an idea how to bring it back into continuity. 
It was supposed to follow up Brand New Day, which was a uh, Spider-Man arc, kind of, or happened for a year within Spider-Man. And it would have fitted perfectly, but uh, we just kept falling behind. I would like to revisit it, but so much time has passed that financially it would be tough to go back to interiors. Hmm. Yeah, that brand new day was the uh, kind of the new status quo for yeah. Spider-Man after Mephisto took away the marriage. It was like um, a happier, a happier time, you know. No one yes. dies, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, between 2001 and 2013, Campbell did numerous covers for the Amazing Spider-Man, but no interiors. Of this, he says, so by the end of the Danger Girl miniseries, I had been drawing interiors for a decade. I felt like taking a break for a while, not being working all the time. That's when I started doing more of my Marvel covers. I always thought of it as a temporary break, but it's proved to be a good fit. I get many requests for new covers, and the original art market always wants to buy the originals. It's become very hard to stop because it works out so well. Mm. It's probably much more lucrative. Um, (laughs) J. Scott Campbell has done covers for IDW, DC, and has worked with Disney drawing calendars and doing some character design. I I would say hours put into work, it definitely is more lucrative probably. Oh, certainly. you get per cover. I mean, you can't fault him. And part of me, oh, certainly not. Part of me, the comic fan. I mean, there are other. You know, he's not the only one that does only covers or primarily covers. But I would love to see, you know, a comic with a Bilson Kevich interior someday. But or Brian Boland, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, guys like that. But they, you know, they're not, they do plenty fine working. Uh, you know, without having to work through weekends and whatever else. You could draw thirty pages a month or forty-five covers a month. Exactly. You know, yeah, and make it make way more out of it. Or you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. Let's not crunch the numbers. That's up for them to do. And you know, it does a good job. I did like. You know, I'm not super familiar. Matter of fact, I did uh, misinterpret the art style or before we even recorded. I, I I did like it, but you know, what I saw in Gen 13 was definitely in the 90s vein. Well, you know oh, what I mean. Totally. Uh, I mean, by way of Jim Lee, but he did a great job uh, mimicking other styles, which I always think is a sign of a good hand you know absolutely yeah, anyway I liked, it. I liked it a lot yeah, yeah. it's uh it, it's you have to read it in context you can you can't look at it with the, you know your own set of eyes sometimes that's <laughs> the way i look at it anyway so i want to talk a little bit about foil stamping since it was such a ubiquitous practice and that sort of is what this whole comic is about <laughs> is uh you know chromium covers and and what, we, what we'll learn it's called printed over foil covers but Foil stamping is really called hot stamping. It's a dry printing method of lithography in which pre-dried ink pigment or foils are transferred to a surface at high temperatures. It's the heat that makes them stick. And oh. it's a, this is the stuff the foil stamped on your book covers. And pretty much anywhere you see it, it's all pretty much done the same way. Uh, in a hot stamping machine, a stamping die, this is a reverse image of what you want to be stamped, engraved on brass or another metal, or sometimes even certain kinds of hard rubber. It's mounted and heated, and the product to be stamped is placed beneath it in a, nowadays it's in a foil roll. It's sort of a strip, a stripe of whatever it is. Dye strikes the product, picks up the foil or the pigment, remains below. Now it has a little bit of a history. Before the Middle Ages, illuminated manuscripts would sometimes be adorned with gold leaf. And this took a lot of work. It took a skilled artisan to tool the leather over an illuminated manuscript or beat gold and foil into a thickness of a quarter millionth of an inch and apply it to a cover. Oh, boy. So this this wasn't just a, uh, maybe we'll put foil on it. You know, this was (laughs) an endeavor. This was like several days of work, I'm sure. Uh, Such artisans, yeah, might spend hours or days on a single volume. 
Prior to the development of hot stamping foils, decorating book covers was accomplished by a method called free-leaf stamping. This is like a very laborious, multi-step process required at least two trained craftsmen to complete. Sort of complex, but it did require handwork on every book. Amazing. And in the uh, 19th century, hot stamping became a popular method of applying gold tooling or embossing in book printing. Uh, the first patent for hot stamping was recorded in Germany by Ernst Oser or Ausser, in 1892. Uh, in the 1930s, uh, the English foil manufacturer George M. Wiley introduced atomized gold on polyester film. Uh, this made the uh, thinnest foil and is essentially what we use to stamp things today. Uh, in the 1950s, vacuum metallizing became extremely popular resulting in thin metal films of simulated gold and aluminum. Uh, by the 60s, machines that could hot stamp as part of the regular inline binding process would emerge in Germany and the United States. But that's more or less where we have our foil stamping needs today. Yeah. Um, Originally, hot foil stamping could only be applied to paper or leather. Uh, today, it could be used on just about everything from plastics, um, even other pieces of metal. There's a newer process called cold foil stamping or cold foil printing, but has entirely different uses. And uh, to our knowledge, comics have not gone this route just yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what that is, is it's, it's some sort of a process where it's actually on another plate, and the <laughs> foil is applied as if it were an ink. Oh, can imagine, but it's not a metallic ink, which has been used for a long time. Sure, it's, sure. It's something else. I, you know, I, I would highly doubt comics would ever travel like down this. that road. Yeah, that seems like an expensive, weird process. But anyway, uh, <laughs> let's get back to comic books specifically. We're talking about the Chromium Age now. You might have noticed throughout this episode, we included some data we normally don't. In fact, we normally kind of even shy away from specifics like this. The yes. values, the current values, and the you know always the cover price of the books that we've discussed. Well, we did that to illustrate that comics, especially around concepts like Gen 3, came to be and looked at as investments for a lot of people, uh, many, many people. This was the age of the manufactured key issue, first appearances, origins, deaths, marriages, births, stuff like that, that was going to spike the price. But what if the comics companies could add another identifier for these key issues? What if they could, for example, enhance the cover of the book? And you can raise demand on the book in primary and secondary markets and increase the cover price because of the increased manufacturing cost. As we saw with our friend Grunge, chromium covers were a really big deal in the early to mid-1990s, often fetching high dollars from readers and speculators alike. These would be Wizard, hot, Wizard magazine hot books. And said Wizard was sort of kind of setting the prices for the back-issue market. Enhanced books was sort of like printing money for these companies. This is also why we featured that Gar that Garib Seamus from Wizard would wind up being the wizard here. Hmm. But he was. No, he as far as we know, he wasn't. It's true. Uh, <laughs> now, many comic historians point to Silver Surfer Volume 2, number 50, from June 1991, as being the first foil-embossed or enhanced cover. Uh, this issue is not only the milestone 50th, but it was also a lead into the crossover event Infinity Gauntlet. Mm -hmm. It's also Silver Surfer, so if you're going to make covers shiny, right. this probably ain't a bad place to start. Right, right. Though this would quickly get out of hand. <laughs> uh, Valiance, Bloodshot Number 1, this is February 1993, is usually cited as the first Chromium cover. Really kicked off the, the uh, title. <laughs> the age. So here's some more foil enhanced and embossed titles. We're going to run some down. Uh, the gimmick covers of the X-Men could be its own podcast series. 
but we'll do a few foil enhanced deals here. In the milestone numbering, it was Uncanny X-Men number 300, X-Men volume 2 number 50, Wolverine number 100, X-Force number 50, and X-Factor number 100. And you know, Chris, I bet that Marvel wishes they had the prescience of mind to do a foil variant for X-Men volume 2 number 1. Right? I bet they were looking back. They were like, damn it. Anyway. Just missed it. Yeah. Uh, a, uh, a story that was uh, during my young readership, uh, The Phalanx Covenant, ran from September and October 1994. Featured uh, like seven enhanced covers, or actually about, about 10 enhanced covers here. We have Uncanny X-Men 316 and 317, X-Men Volume 2 36 and 37, X-Factor 106, X-Force 38, Excalibur 82, Wolverine 85, Cable 16. And it was just one strip a foil on the edge of the show, on the edge of the really <laughs> that's all a, it was wow that's all it was and uh it was a uh, quite an expensive time to be an x-men fan i could imagine there's juice in you mm-hmm. and, I, and this is just a story running you know this isn't an event really right this is an x-men well, well it is an x-men world you in know, x-men but, world yeah because it I launched mean, this is where gen 13 uh, gen 13 this is where generation x came from this wasn't uh <laughs> you know uh, infinity gauntlet over here anyway yeah. no no it wasn't a big marvel event now kind of a nice way to juice some dolls out of you that's very nice so anyway uh 20th anniversary of giant Tent x-men number one 1995 this was uh, Uncanny X-Men number 325 in October of that year. X-Men volume 2 number 45 in October. And then five issues later would also be foiled, as we just talked about. Uh, the latter of, the, of which had a big effect on Chris, but we're going to talk about that later. He'll be talking about this issue later on. Uh, the Wolverine Gambit Victims miniseries were all foiled. And the Deadpool miniseries from this year were all foiled. The Avengers 30th anniversary issues also. That was Avengers number 360, March 93. Avengers 363, June 93. Avengers 366, September 93. And Avengers 369, December 93. Yikes. Uh, Price a year to be an Avengers fan, though at least a, a drop in the bucket compared to a single month nowadays. And that's not the foil, folks. That's no, no foil on those covers. <laughs> On the new ones, yeah. yeah. Uh, we have the uh, DC post-crisis 100s. Uh, after the crisis, you know, restarted a bunch of books at number one. They all hit 100 around the same time. We've got a Superman Volume 2, number 100, Wonder Woman Volume 2, number 100, Flash Volume 2, number 100, and Justice League America, number 100. Uh, also, Flash number 80 and the Daredevil, the Man Without Fear miniseries. Well, do you know what was, what was Flash number 80? Why was it foiled? Any reason? I think it was just oversized. They just decided it was yeah, 80 was I'm a sure good there was round number. To it, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> that was the Silver Streak was also featured. Speaking of which, uh, Silver Sable and the <laughs> Wild Pack number 1, Wildcats Covert Action Teams number 2, but not number 1, huh? Interesting. Oh. Web of Spider-Man number 100s featuring the spider armor, so there was a good reason for it, obviously mm-hmm. to have metal. Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy number 25, what? Uh June 92. Guardians of the Galaxy number 39, August 93, where they fight Wolverine's adamantium skeleton. Why not? And uh, I'm just blowing through your whole list here. (laughs) I'll just do the last one. You go on to the next part. Fantastic Four number 375. It's kind of holofoil, which now brings us to... Oil's brother, the hologram. Uh, this is actually not a stamp, but an inlay, more or less a sticker transferred to the cover and made permanent with heat. Uh, point out, point out that most of these holograms were uh, 
pretty bad. <laughs> and most of them turned into a flat, flat grayish blob within a few years or even a few minutes. Yeah, that, that, that's definitely my memory of them. Uh, I'll, I'll, hmm. I'll just take the X-Men part here. Hmm. Uh, back to them again. We got the Fatal Attractions crossover, July, November 1993. Each issue featured a hologram card placed on the front cover, which had to be upgraded to cardstock to handle the load. And also upgraded the price, I bet, uh, quite oh, a yes. bit. X-Factor number 92, that was X-Force number 95, Uncanny X-Men number 304, X-Men volume 2 number 25, uh, Wolverine number 75, and Excalibur number 71. Yeah, and actually that was, uh, I, I mistyped that there, that's X-Force number 25. Oh, right. um, oh actually, yeah, oh, 95. What? We also have a Resurrection Man number one. It's uh, more like a lenticular pog stuck on this thing that uh, shows you a skull when you look at it just the right way. Yeah. Uh, Robin 2, the Joker's Wild miniseries. Each fish issue featured a hologram, though not nearly as thick as those on the X-Men books. Uh, standard covers carried that burden just fine. And then, now these, <laughs> I really, we, we've talked about these before, Chris. We have. Uh, Spider-Man 30th Anniversary Issues. That was Amazing Spider-Man 365, Spider-Man number 26, Web of Spider-Man number 90, and Spectacular Spider-Man number 189. And these were ugly right out of the box. Yeah, they, they, were, they, were, they never looked good. Just bad, just bad holograms, bad images, and over time, they all turned into gray. It Blobs. just looks like a silver window it's on nothing. the uh, on the cover. There's nothing there. Nothing. <laughs> now we'll go to foil and holograms thicker, brother chromium. Now this is actually a process called print over foil, like we said earlier, where the stock itself is metallic or has a foil laid over it, and the printing is done over that. Uh, often it needs a, a fifth color white beyond the normal four color printing uh, process printing. Mm -hmm. We're gonna start with the X Men still. We have uh, the Age of Apocalypse bookends, bo uh, bookend uh, volumes here, uh, X-Men Omega and X-Men Alpha. We have X-O Man War number zero. We have Detective Comics 675 as the uh, Night Quest, uh, during the Night Quest uh, storyline. But just that one. Not all of the night, you know what I mean? I, you, yep. I, I just see a, a big variance in how DC and Marvel are using <laughs> these. I must say, these effects just from this list, it's like, DC is using them. Don't get, don't, nobody make any mistake, but... It seems to be a little more sparingly, or a little maybe a little maybe a little less uh, adventurously is a better way to put it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of thick, here's some thick <laughs> embossed covers. There was Fantastic Four 371. This it was, was ugly as hell. This was a uh, it was a flat, just a flat embossed color with uh, like a melting Human Torch on the cover. Really? And they, they yeah they blew it all they blew all embossing on that embossing. in red and white. <laughs> This was uh, there's also acetate cover that has a clear overlay over it to, that makes it hard to keep the book open. But there's usually something printed on the overlay, right? Is that the idea? Some of uh, them. Some of them. That, that's 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 usually the best use of them. Sometimes they just put the plastic there to annoy you in the uh, long box, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, Marvels was like that. X Men Prime, Spider Man, Maximum Clonage Alpha. Mm. Uh, and we want to say that this is by no means an all-inclusive list because Absolutely. we don't have six years to read these titles off. No, but <laughs> Chris, Chris did his uh, diligence and he did get a lot of help out of this. But yeah, if you if you can yes. remember more, let us know. Definitely. Uh, now uh, something real fun here: the die cut. We're going to start with Protectors number five from Malibu Comics. This is uh, January 1993. This is the bullet hole issue. The cover featured a bloody chest with an actual hole in it. <laughs> wow. The hole went through the entire issue, which ended with 
you guessed it, somebody getting shot. Uh, it's worth noting that Jab Number 3 from Adhesive Comics, April 1993, did something similar. However, actually used a pellet gun to make the bullet hole. Oh, no, no uh, die cutting there. Just actually no shoot cutting. the book, yeah. That was brought to our attention by uh, Dean Compton from the website uh, The Unspoken Decade that uh, the jab bullet gimmick was actually conceived before Malibu did the deed on Protectus. Hmm. Uh, Shannon Wheeler, the creator of Too Much Coffee Man, states that he had met the writer of Protectus, that's R.A. Jones, at the Dallas Fantasy Fair comic show, at which time he shared a promotional mini-comic which explained the bullet hole gimmick. Hmm. As you might imagine, he was none too pleased to see Protectus number five when it hit the stands. Now, of this jab comics, 3,000 copies were produced, and it took the adhesive folks three days to shoot a lot of them. Wow. Standard issues were shot with a 22. <laughs> special edition were shot with a 9mm. And a super special and unreadable version was shot with a shotgun <laughs> and polybagged, and it had a, <laughs> carried a $20 price tag. Only, only in the 90s could you, could only you pull the, something like this. But I uh, got to say that the resulting hole on each page was actually incorporated into the stories, which so, is pretty cool. So, they, so it really was a matter of precise aiming Yeah. to get all these <laughs> correct, you know? That's pretty, yep. pretty, pretty clever stuff. Uh, Crazy Man number one is going back to die cuts. This is May 1993 from Continuity Comics. The entire book is cut to the shape of the lead character's profile, which is pretty ugly and uh, doesn't really make a lot of sense. Mm. And then Wolverine number 50, January 1992. The cover looks like a the man, like a Manila folder from the Weapon X file cabinet, and with three claw marks through it. Rough claw marks, actually. I'd have thought adamantium would kind of just slice, make a real clean scissor cut, wouldn't you? On, you on a folder, yeah. I don't, you know, it doesn't seem like much. <laughs> um, polybagged books. Mm-hmm. The X Men again. <laughs> X Force number one, August 1991, sold five million copies. Wow. Uh, each issue came packaged, yes, with a uh, with one of five X Force trading cards. Those cards were Cable, Deadpool, Shatterstar, Sunspot and Gideon, and the X-Force team. Can you guess which one was the most coveted in 1991 and uh, which one might be the most coveted today? Mm, I'm feeling <laughs> Deadpool, maybe. Like maybe. maybe. <laughs> it was Cable back then. It's Deadpool Deadpool now. today, for sure, I would say, yeah. <laughs> Uh, also, we have the Executioner's Song crossover, which ran from November 92 to February 93 cover dates. This is Uncanny X-Men 294 through 296, X-Factor 84 through 86, X-Men Volume 2 14 through 16, and X-Force 16 through 18. Uh, each chapter of the crossover came with a trading card from Strife Strike File, which upped the cover price a quarter. Uh, we probably don't need to go too deep on these two. Uh, Superman yeah. 75, he, that one came uh, bagged. <laughs> that oh, came yeah. out uh, January 93 cover date. And also, Adventures of Superman 500 in June 93 also came bagged, uh, but it was white instead of black. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm sure we'll eventually get to them. As well, as we mentioned, we're talking about Superman 75 at one point. I can't remember. We didn't do that issue, but we did talk about no. it and that they had. Uh, even different polybags. Remember, they had a platinum one mm-hmm. and a red one with the bleeding yep. Superman S. And polybags are annoying because, like, the poly, the plastic, is just a little bit thinner, usually, or always, that I've ever seen, than what you would use in a standard comic book bag. Yep. And by existing, I know, you're, I'm, I'm speaking to the choir here, you know what I mean? Uh, but, yeah, they, they don't fit into a bag. They always make mess up your long box. Like, who wants these... 
Yeah, you have like that flap hanging there. Don't it's let's not, not get cute. You know what I mean? Unless unless it's <laughs> pornographic, why? Why 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 bother? Anyway. <laughs> so of course there's glow in the dark. This uses mm-hmm. glow in the dark inks. It's pretty uh, self explanatory. These things exist, usually run out after about four or five years and they just turn into like flat yellow if you don't keep them uh, <laughs> away from light. You don't anyway. cycle them, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh Spectre number one, okay, covered a December 1992, Superman volume two, number 123. This is the electric blue fella, May 1997. Green Lantern volume three, number 50, Emerald Twilight, that was March 1994. Sandman special Orpheus number one, used it March 1991. Daredevil number 321, Fall from Grace chapter two, October 1993. And Ghost Rider number 15, July 1991, all cover dates. And I, I just want to say, you know, I mentioned before the show, Chris and I were talking. I can think of a lot of like prestige formats and trade collections that use it. It's it's probably is one of the most commonly used effects because it's just a matter of adding another ink. You don't have to really yeah. do anything. You don't have to create the, a brass, a metal thing, yeah. or heat anything up. You know, you just have to throw another piece of ink in the vat. But anyway, that's uh, <laughs> what we got for this list. Yeah, we have uh, some honorable mentions here. We have Robin Three Cry of the Huntress miniseries. These were ugly. Uh, <laughs> these had slide motion covers. So uh, there's a oh, tab yes. oh, and yes. a window. Oh, yes, <laughs> so I do. You pull the tab to make the image in that window appear to be moving. And uh, it was quite ugly. They were uh, also polybagged, so you can double your pleasure, double your speculatory OCD. I mean, that's, that's like one of those gimmicks that went out in like with in the like 1920s slot machines. You know, I mean, really, like pulling a duck, a wooden duck along on a string. That's the kind of level of entertainment that's at. So you buy three copies of that: one to read, one to play with, and the one to keep, uh, keep in the bag. Please. Uh, a fellow that we uh, we talked about a couple weeks ago, Eclipso, The Darkness Within, number one, 1992. This features that gem stuck to the Oh, that's the so messed cover. up. That's so messed up. Why? <laughs> and this, um, this pretty much mandates that this be the book in the very front of your lawn box. Uh, we have uh, The Amazing Spider-Man, number 400, uh, covered in April 1995. And this features the blob <laughs> that would be a tombstone. <laughs> Really, a, a yeah, horrible yeah, know, looking cut. I know this is another. For some reason, I know all the all, all the accidental ones really yeah. well. <laughs> all the and it's ups. it's too bad because it was such a great issue, and that cover just. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, now, Blood Strike number one. This is uh, the Rub the Blood cover. <laughs> Love to uh, use of thermal ink made it so you, yes, you, were able to run your fingers on this thing. And it would cause it to reveal red blood splotches on the cover. How about that? Wow, that's just what you want with your comic. Isn't it? What happens to that thermal ink in five years? I'd love, you know, it's just turned black. So it's got to do something. It, it can't work. I can't imagine that works endlessly. It's, I think it gains sentience. <laughs> you think next time it does, they take some of your blood, an <laughs> actual human blood on the cover. <laughs> Uh, this is a classic. We did actually talk about this at one time. Guy Gardner Warrior number 29. It features the opening of Guy Gardner's Warrior Bar, and the front cover opens as though you're entering through saloon doors, so it actually does make sense for the story. Uh, but the non-deluxe newsstand cover features a riff on Nighthawks. It actually looks a lot cooler, quite frankly, but yeah. um, it, it, you know, it, it, it was that's when we did do that one for the treadmill, right? I mean, we we must did, have. yeah, for an early, early treadmill. Could you help me out? I totally forget what's going Anyway, uh, <laughs> Superman Man of Steel number 30, February 94, cover date, features a thick, glossy cover and also a sheet of colorform-style vinyl clings. You can make Superman and Lobo do many things high in the skies of Metropolis. 
Mm-hmm. And Megalith number three, August 1993, from Continuity Comics, features an indestructible cover made of Tyvek. Uh, Tyvek is a DuPont product described on DuPont.com as being a family of tough, durable, spun-bounded olefins sheet products that are stronger than paper and more cost-effective and versatile than fabrics. Yep. <laughs> All right. So you don't you don't shoot this comic; it'll just bounce back at you. I think. It'll yeah, it'll hurt you. It'll you'll, it'll the ricochet will get you. Uh, now that's that's you know back in the day. These are the nineties. This is the Chromium Age of comics we just finished up here. But that's that doesn't mark the end of no, these gimmick covers here. Always. No, we've got, uh, and again, we want to we want to stress that this is not an all-inclusive list. So if we forgot one you know of, just let us know. Um, we've got the recent attempts here, Marvel with their. They're doing poly bags. We had uh, Fantastic Four, the three storyline, where one of the members of the Fantastic Four were going to die, hmm. and so they shipped it on a uh, on a Wednesday with a black cover, but then broke the story uh, in USA Today on Tuesday, which rendered the black bag yeah. kind of moot. Good job. Um, Why would you do that? <laughs> also, uh, Uncanny X Force, the Dark Angel saga. This was uh, the last part of an extended storyline of Uncanny X Force, and it, for whatever reason, came in a black bag. Um, I'm not sure what color the bags were for the Ultimate line of comics when they when they changed like Ultimate Spider-Man to Ultimate Comics Spider-Man uh-huh. and then Ultimate X-Men to Ultimate Comics X-Men. They uh, they did release those first issues in bags. I think they might have been white though. Or just or maybe printed clear or something like this. Or yeah, and and now that I think of it, the Fantastic Four one might have been a blue bag, like a classic Fantastic right, Four right. uniform. The, uh, yeah, the, the uh, classic four blue we call it. I know. Yeah. That up. <laughs> Um, there was another good one, uh, or <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. Uh, another one that <laughs> happened twice. DC lenticular covers. This is the covers where you turn it one way and it's like, I don't know, a villain standing and then turn it the other way, a villain sitting. I, I can't really remember the gimmick, but but uh, <laughs> they used it for what Villains Month they and then for they used it for month. Future's End. Uh, yes, exactly, and it showed like and what was going to happen five years in the future. So it was like one of them was Batman today, and then. Uh, future Batman as you turned yeah. it and whatever 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 that was about and uh, I remember the first one the first year they did it for Villains Month remember they were super late or some crazy thing happened there was a run on them because they had like the lenticular material was limited yeah and, and the second year they had plenty of it but by then we were all like no we're not over it we're yeah. not falling for that stuff again Age of Ultron number one what was this one like, that was a uh, that was a foil yeah another fo- so foil came back. Mm-hmm. Death of Wolverine miniseries. More foil. And uh, the Origin 2 was acetate cover. Uh, Batman Death of the Family had a die cut cover. Uh, also, the uh, trade hardback has an acetate jacket wrap. Hmm. Death of the Family. It's got like a Joker mask you can take off or something like that. Ah. Uh, Valiant Armor Hunters event. More chromium. The return of chromium. Oh, never really went away. And uh, (laughs) the mother effing variant cover. Yeah. Those aren't going anywhere. No, they are still Uh. around. But, you know, we were even talking before, though, that... uh, And apparently this is not... This isn't just limited to one company, but a lot of these... Okay, can I just break in one second, Chris? Sure. Uh, you know, there are two things. There are the uh, regular variants that are just one-for-one one variants. If you want to buy, you know, the, the uh, you know Spider-Man cover or you want to buy the Spider-Man hanging out with the Quick Rabbit cover, 
that's a one for one that that's whatever it is and those are sold but then there's the incentivized ones and this is really what i think we're talking about yes uh these ones that are, you know you gotta they're 20 you know one in 25 one in 100 sometimes now one in a thousand one in ten thousand and these print runs aren't even going much higher than ten thousand so you got to think of how ridiculous that is and <laughs> those usually require that you up your order on another title to justify this other and this is the this is the covers that are making trouble and right now a lot of the the, the companies are liquidating old variant covers so mm-hmm. don't support that stuff kids that's what i'm trying to tell you <laughs> you're just supporting nonsense anyway go back let's go to a christery lesson here yes we mentioned earlier that x-men volume 2 number 45 had a pretty big impact on me and it did uh this was a foil cover it was a fold-out foil cover where the only thing that was in foil was the word X-Men on the inside of the fold-up. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I had posed a question on, on Twitter if anybody had bought comics based on these things, if anybody had purposely, you know, wasn't going to buy it but then saw it and decided they needed to have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my reaction with X-Men 45 was the opposite. I actually saw it, put it back, and walked away from comics for about two years. Really? Yeah. I was done. Now, um, now I decided that you do have it now. Of course I do. Of course, yeah. You, you <laughs> I did might go have back. two or three. Right, right. You know, and, and but, yeah, you, you probably got them at a nice discount too. The way you. The way you oh yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I walked in with my you know normal savings of lunch money to <laughs> to buy uh, X Men. I was expecting to pay you know I think it was like dollar ninety five because it was X Men Deluxe. Right. It was that glossy paper that. The, the you know the the technology just wasn't there yet. It looked all greasy and you, you couldn't look under it. Look at it under a light or the, you get it was blinded. Like, it was like, it was actually like almost like a gloss film was applied to it. It was so yeah, it was, it was even gross. Like, it was not good. Yeah, and the inking it didn't do the inking any favors. But uh, I got to the store and this one was you know four bucks and. You know, I don't like paying four dollars for a comic today. Uh, going back almost twenty years or over twenty years, I, I'm not gonna. You know, I don't want to pay four bucks for it. And when I asked the guy to store what it was for, he's like, "Oh, it's the 20th anniversary of Giant Size X-Men." I'm like, "Who cares?" It, that that basically told me that they could celebrate an anniversary of anything. Yeah. This is you know this is this is the anniversary of the first time Wolverine smoked a cigar sure. on panel. Oh I boy. Know. The first time Len Wein thought of, you know, whatever, you know, a storm yeah. or something, you know, with you sitting at home. Yeah, it's, uh, and I, I can, you know, the fact that it's twice the amount, it just yeah, shows how much the they don't, they don't care about the kid literally going with his lunch money. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's what makes me annoyed at it. It's just like, what? And we were just coming off the Age of Apocalypse, so I, I had just bought three or two Chromium covers and one of the Acetate covers at five bucks a pop. And look at the number there, 45. In five issues, there's another Chromium cover coming. Well, I was, no, I was noticing that when we were going breaking down the list, there's a lot from this uh, series, Volume yeah. Volume 2. There's quite a few. It seems like at least every, like, 15-ish, there's another one coming on down the pike. Exactly. So it's uh, I could definitely. That's it. I mean, whenever I hear about you walking away from comics <laughs> for a while, and I know it has happened, but I'm always like, really? Well, well that's what did it. Uh, yeah, it's so weird. It had nothing because X Men number forty five is an excellent issue. No pun intended. It's yeah. it's a great. Uh, I think it's Fabian Niciesa. It's a, a story about Gambit um, fighting Sabretooth in New Orleans. It's a great issue, but. I wasn't gonna pay four dollars for you, it. You basically said, "I'm out." You know, I'm not. I'm yeah. not playing your game anymore. You know, for goodbye. 
And if, and I mean, you know me well enough to know I'm kind of a completionist. I'm kind of a nut when it comes to these things where I'm not going to, if I'm going to read X-Men, I'm reading all the X-Men. Right. I'm not going to skip, I'm not going to skip X-Force or Right, whatever. right, yeah. And, uh, and when I realized I wasn't, I was going to have to save up more money to buy a single issue, I decided that it wasn't worth it and I wasn't going to be able to afford everything. So I might as well just stop. It had to be all or nothing. Yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't just skip this issue. And I mean, realistically you probably could, and you know, you get filled in, you'd you'd be up to speed, but I I do understand that you want to see everyone. And again, they kind of, kind of, uh, messing with with the little kids, uh, Allowance money there. That's really. It really seems almost like bullying tactic, you know, like <laughs> preying on your your need to read a complete story. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, Chris also did put out the feelers for other people's memories of the Chromium Age, and we got some responses. We're going to be uh, reading, listing off some right here. Uh, Rob at uh, you unstable molecules. That's U N S T B L molecules. He says, I have fond memories of playing with the Man of Steel number thirty Lobo. Color form cover. Uh, Dr. Ange from Supergirl Comics Box Commentary re- agrees, calling Man of Steel number 30 Presto Magic's Fun. Mm-hmm. Alex Martin at Martin Old Guy and reminded us about the Guy Gardner Warrior number 29 cover and gave a mention to Rubbing the Blood in issue number one of Blood Strike by Rob Liefeld. And Mike Peacock from Justice First Dawn says, Rubbing the Blood for Blood Strike number one. Never gets old, so maybe it didn't wear off. Maybe I'm wrong maybe. about that. Thermal ink, it still works just as good as it did back then. They have a symbiotic relationship at this point. Oh, boy. Uh, uh, Mike Carlisle from the Crap Box of Son of Cthulhu says he has so many foils he can't count them. And uh, I shop at some of those same Crap Boxes <laughs> at uh, Half Price Books, and I know exactly what he's talking about. Uh, our pal Joe Crawford for, from, uh, for the Non-Discerning Reader and guest host for Comics in the Golden Age episode mini-episode 33. That's right. A good comments, one. A couple, a couple of old Archies he reads there. Absolutely. Real good. Yeah. real good, real good. Uh, he comments that he liked the foil cover bookends for Age of Apocalypse, but denotes that his favorite is the uh, his favorite gimmick cover is the glow in the dark cover for Spectre number one. Uh, Mark Sweeney from I'm the Gun says that he bought the earliest gimmick cover he can remember, and it's one of the few that he still owns. And it actually is the first one, Silver Surfer wow. Volume Two, number fifty. Uh, Longbox Graveyard on Twitter comments that that his friends who worked at Malibu still talk about doing that bullet hole cover on uh, Protectors number five. Wow. And they and believes that they consider it their finest gimmick. Uh, JP, JP Roscoe at JP Roscoe 76 reminded us that Ghost Rider 15 had a glow in the dark cover and Guardians of the Galaxy number 25, the first one, uh, had a had a hollow foil cover. Bradley Myers at Jedi Emra, Jedi Emra, that sounds more like it. Jedi Emra yes. and Slang Sword uh, also mentioned the Ghost Rider cover. Jody Yurden at Regal Fan re- recalls how the glow in the dark Green Lantern number 50 was a high watermark in his early collecting and adds, nothing screams 90s like hologram gambit <laughs> alongside a photo of X-Men number 25. Yeah, I told him that if I was ever going to start a band, I think I'd call it hologram, hologram gambit. gambit. Yeah, and it would have, it, hologram bit would not do it. It, had, <laughs> no, it, it has to be, be hologram gambit. And uh, finally, Mick Garcia remembers the little purple gem on the cover to Eclipse of the Darkness <laughs> Within and says it made it totally worth the cover price. I remember that, too, but I also remember thinking to myself, like, that's just going to, like, mess everything up, you know? Everything up. <laughs> Not even in a long box, just, like, it's, it's got to be on top of everything or, you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't have a stack with that. But uh, 
Unless you buy a thousand of them and pretend you're really him. Yeah, it's exactly. That, that'd be the way to do it, you know what I mean? To really take him off and try to put together the old black uh, gem. But, uh, you know, we, we, we had a real good time with this. Chris was really, uh, you know, talking with the folks about Chromium. But if you would like to tell us about your Chromium-era memories, or maybe you have a uh, comic or a dozen that we left off the list, then please do write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, even with... Thoughts of Gen 13 or anything else you want to talk to us about it. Oh, yeah, that's the book we talked about. That's today. right. You totally forgot. <laughs> we did three of them. Uh, if you, you can also uh, catch us, of course, at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, where we have a bunch of our podcasts. This is our weekly podcast, but there are also episodes of Weird Comics History and back episodes of Cosmic Treadmill. You can mm. go over there. I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And I'd say every week, and especially this week, you really got to go over to Chris's personal blog. Check it out. It's Chris on, is on InfiniteEarths.com. Uh, he does a new DC Comics review every day of the week, and it really could be anything from, I guess, technically the first one up until something that came out about a, you know, <laughs> a few months ago. Uh, but recently, you did your 500th consecutive blog post. And I think you deserve a, a congratulations for that. That is Thank really... Quite a milestone that really is a lot of dedication. Uh, definitely, I couldn't have done it. I definitely would have dropped a few <laughs> days in there. There's no question about it. But you have done uh, every single day. And I'm telling you, folks, it's everything you want to see. Superman or Batman all the way to Jerry Lewis. It's crazy over there. So uh, <laughs> you, you got to check it out. And uh, now would be a perfect time to do it. Absolutely. To, to celebrate Chris's milestone. But I think we've got on pretty long here. And I think... Uh, that's all we got from this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? Um, the uh, the the Twitter comments we included at the end. Just let us know if you if you dig hearing stuff like that, uh, and uh, if so, we'll we'll keep doing it. Yeah. Uh, we posed the question. Uh, I, I said it was an eleventh hour request because I didn't think about doing it until I realized I was going to share my little X Men forty five uh, temper tantrum right. <laughs> today. So I figured, hey, I wonder if anybody else has similar stories. So uh, we'll try to get the question out there earlier if uh, if we do decide to do it again. Uh, we we hope folks yeah. uh, dug it. Definitely let us know. Write into us. Let us know if you like that kind of sharing. Uh, you know, I'm a little Chris, little recalcitrant to go. Full bore on it because we could end up having a three-hour show with an hour of uh, reading yes. messages. But you know, we will we'll be judicious. We'll use our common sense. Just uh, engage with us, everybody. But if that's Certainly. all you got from this week, Chris, I want everyone to keep it on the treadmill, chromally. I'm a codependent scapegoat that's hyperactive and melodramatic day tripper in the black moonlight, soon radioactive as I start to procrastinate this list. Brought to you on my plan and my monotonous ways. I need consistencies, random tendencies, enabling me to see and read the same different languages. I can hang with this. My spelling may be missed, but they're just cycle words that I've been labeled with. There are no comic books in my comic books There's just heroes, villains, and awkward looks I illustrate my sight with a pen and a mic Quick draw conclusions that have been in my life There are no comic books in my comic books There's just heroes, villains, and awkward looks I illustrate my sight with a pen and a mic Quick draw conclusions that have been in my life the beats felt like a seatbelt. Keep your neck and back in place just in case we wreck this motherfucker. Check another clutch shot. Ah, name on the line, name on the line, same as not. Drop. Swing for the fences every sentence was box. Up yesterday, moving to tomorrow, keep it going that way. Progress, no stretch, just chest strategy.